Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It is my great pleasure today to welcome to the show Kelly Hippler. Kelly is the Chief Sales Officer at Forrester. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. Forrester helps businesses and technology leaders develop customer-obsessed strategies to drive growth, a research and advisory firm that helps, obviously, tech leaders and business leaders uh, with their decision-making. Share with us your favorite business or leadership book of all time and why that book resonated so deeply with you. Sure. I think the one that comes to mind would be Jim Collins' Good to Great. I think the breadth and depth of the research that went into that and the framework and focus around, in particular, the execution um, and technology related to being successful really resonated. I think in my experience, companies spend a ton of time talking about strategy. And while strategy is important, and I know he uses the hedgehog analogy, at the end of the day, if you can't execute against it, a business won't get to where they're looking to go to. And I just thought he offered such a great framework. And I think that's why probably, you know, 15, 20 years later, that one still stands out for me. One of the criticisms that's lobbed against that book these days is that a number of the companies that were profiled as being some of those companies that became good to great are now either been swallowed up by other companies or just no longer the great entities they once were. What do you think of that criticism? That's a fair criticism, but I think the reality is that every business needs to be agile and continue to change, that there's no such thing as getting done or being through a process. And that as markets change and a big focus of what we do here at Forrester is being focused on the era that we're currently in that we refer to as the age of the customer and really needing to be able to adopt and evolve your strategy over time in order to remain competitive and remain strong in the market. And I think These folks were probably doing well and became victims of their own success, same as some of the predecessors that he probably looked at in the original survey set. Even though I've been here 20 years, over the last two years, I've realized, you know, the learning never stops, the development never stops. And the minute that you try to stand still or even think in your mind that you're done with something, you're already falling behind on the next wave. The other thing that's in that book, which actually leads into our topic for our podcast today is big, hairy, audacious goals, BHAGs. One of your at Forrester's BHAGs obviously is to increase the impact that you have with those tech leaders and business leaders. And one of the ways you did that was through an acquisition recently of serious decisions. So that'll be the main theme we're going to talk about. But before we get there, what's the first thing you remember selling maybe as a business professional? First selling job that I had was actually selling house painting. So back in college, I was a franchisee for college pro painters and for two summers was selling house painting services to suburban folks in uh, in the greater Boston area. So that was my first experience with selling something. What was a sale like? Transactional commodity or something different? It was a bit transactional in that it was definitely a, a volume play. I think the way that we differentiated was around having perhaps a slightly more professional approach than an individual working out of the back of their truck may have, that there was a full corporation behind it, that that was a two-year guarantee. 
I think people like the idea of helping college students over the course of the summer. So in addition to running your own franchise, you would then enlist and hire um, others to work as painters for you. People also just like the concept of helping college kids over the course of the summer. And that was a way to help differentiate that particular service and something that largely is a commodity. Great getting some perspective on kind of where you're focused. And let's turn to that big, hairy, audacious goal, which was your recent acquisition of Serious Decisions. Can you talk a little bit about why Serious Decisions? When we had the opportunity to take a look at potentially acquiring Serious Decisions, we already knew that it was a very well-respected brand in the marketing space in particular, but also covers product and, and sales. And one of the things that we started to see quite quickly was the great synergy between the value that Sirius delivers to its clients and the value that Forrester delivers. And one of the things we were really surprised by as we were doing the due diligence was the lack of overlap between the two services in terms of number of clients, but even more importantly, down to the seat holder. So we really felt as though it was a great adjacency to the work that Forrester already does with our clients, which is largely focused on external market pressures to then be able to complement that with um, streams of research and access to thought leaders who can help people execute on their marketing strategies. And I happened to be in San Francisco the day that we announced, and it just so happened the following day, we had a Forrester client in who was uh, in to talk to a team about how she leveraged Forrester. And she was literally able to talk through her campaign management cycle and articulate where in the process she would turn to Sirius for benchmarks and metrics. And then she would go to Forrester to do buyer persona work or to help with the messaging. And each of the companies and both parts of the portfolio had a role to play in that process. And it was just amazing to hear that our clients and prospects felt the same thing. They, the word we tend to hear again and again is complimentary, which is great. It just means we'll be able to help our clients in a much more meaningful way moving forward, which we're really excited about. Sirius is great for their, as you mentioned, benchmarks. And then I think another thing you didn't immediately mention was all the frameworks that people really subscribe to and build their organizations around the demand waterfall types of concepts and that sort of thing in the marketing space. And I, I know Sirius has many sales related frameworks as well. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things we've started to see now as we've talked to more joint clients as well as Sirius Decisions clients is a lot of them will only hire marketing people who understand their frameworks and, and especially the, the demand waterfall. So they actually look for that in candidates that they're hiring because marketing groups will know that a candidate that they bring in who know these frameworks and understand them will ramp up that much more quickly. They'll be able to speak the language. Um, and in some cases, for some of our clients, it's a prerequisite that folks have familiarity with those frameworks. So they're critical to how a lot of marketers operate and measure the performance of their efforts. I read a research paper recently and it had this graph in there and it showed the combined financial performance of two companies pre-acquisition and then the financial performance and then post-acquisition. It's a scary chart to look at, actually. It wakes leaders up because pre-acquisition, you know, the companies are sort of humming along. And then post-acquisition, if you take hundreds, if not thousands of acquisitions, so often the combined performance lags behind. What are you guys doing in order to make sure that you are value creating in the post-acquisition process? Forrester has historically been very thoughtful about the acquisitions that we make because we know that there can be headwinds. And I think through a lot of the acquisitions that we've done historically, one of the key things that distinguish those that were more successful than those maybe not as successful as we would have liked really comes down to culture. 
and the culture of the two organizations and how well aligned they are. So we've spent a lot of time up front just getting to know one another. I think we've also tried to approach this more like a merger than an acquisition in that for everything that we're doing, we're not assuming that Forrester has cracked the code on how to do this um, and that we are bringing something better to the table, but rather really pushing groups to take the best practice regardless of where it comes from, and make sure that that's how our new combined company will operate moving forward in 2020. Because we know just through the work that Sirius does on behalf of its own clients, that they bring a great and fresh perspective for us in the areas of marketing and sales in particular. And we want to make sure that we're thinking about and incorporating that as we move forward. And I think it will lead to a more successful outcome than the norm in this particular case. One of the things we did just out of the gates was instituted a buddy system, right? Just so that each person on the serious decision side would have somebody that they could connect with for any question related to what it's like to be at Forrester, because it's, you know, pretty overwhelming when you go from being a 350-ish person company to now being part of a larger organization and trying to figure out what that means. So we really wanted to make sure that the people felt welcome out of the gate and had resources available. And we also took it as an opportunity to showcase a lot of our senior leaders who came to us through prior acquisitions. And you know some of the folks from the Giga acquisition now hold some very senior leadership roles here at Forrester and being able to showcase that we really do focus on who are the best athletes moving forward. There's no pride of ownership. We want to do what's going to be best for our clients and the overall business moving forward. So if we talk about the integration side, I mean, obviously, I would assume you're involved in many aspects of it, but the one aspect I think the listeners would be most interested in, certainly I'm most interested in, is go-to-market integration. It's a very broad topic, but in go-to-market, what are some of the similarities? And then we can get into some of the differences in go-to-market strategy and how you're thinking about resolving those. Part of what also made this attractive to us was in looking at how the sales organization and as well as their customer success, which was a newly formed function there, very similar to the journey that we've been on here at Forrester, was that by and large, a lot of the same roles, they might be called something slightly different, already existed, but the team was sort of bifurcated into, you know, sort of a major or strategic accounts group. There was a team that called on, you know, smaller vendors, similar to what we have with our premier and core selling motion here in the customer engagement model. They leverage a BDR function, similar to what we do here and had been building out customer success as a way to drive added value. In addition to that, um, Forrester has been working to evolve our sales teams from more of a geographic model to a vertically aligned model. One of the things that we have found is that in order to really drive value for our clients when they're dealing with huge transformations, whether it be customer experience or digital transformation, having that industry lens to be able to put on it allows our teams to add more value to our clients And we saw that Sirius had been starting to target and go after some of the same verticals where we had a strong footprint. So there were a lot of similarities in terms of the organization. One difference is there are some places where um, there's a hybrid model in place. And I think that's one of the things that we'll we'll be taking a look at Um, for some of the teams. They do both the new business and managing accounts that we'll be looking at and and trying to sort through as we figure out our go-to-market strategy for 2020. We had a time where people were routinely full cycle salespeople. They were prospecting, managing opportunities, closing, managing and renewing accounts, upselling, cross-selling, right? Everything, right? As the SaaS models proliferated and started to find their way into other areas like information services and other areas, 
people began to separate into specialization of labor with SDRs or BDRs sourcing opportunities, handing off to AEs to close. And then those AEs hand Hunter AEs hand off to account managers. And then that got split further into account managers who do the commercial part of the relationship and then CSMs who do the non-commercial, although there's fuzziness there. On the Forrester side, before we even get into serious decisions, how are you structured in each of those areas? It sounds like your strategic accounts side is called Premier and then your mid-market is Core. Yes, that's correct. Do you have a different structure in Premier versus Core? We do. So um, we talk about our go-to-market model. Um, We call it our customer engagement model. And there are two discrete selling motions. Um, So within the core organization, um, we have account managers, and then we have um, new business reps that do the hunting our account executives. And once a client is closed, it does get handed off to somebody um, in an account management role who then manages, but ideally also is exposing those clients to other areas and ways that Forrester might be able to help. Our premier organization, because those do tend to be the billion dollar plus accounts, we actually have a couple of different roles there. We do have what we call a client executive, which is essentially an umbrella name for any account management roles that we have. And they are the quarterback on the overall strategy for the account. We then have customer success managers who are responsible for the day-to-day engagement um, of our end users with the research, making sure we understand what initiatives they're working on, matching them to the correct IP and or analysts who might be able to help with those. And then the third role that we have is um, a solution partner, which is essentially a very high-level sales engineer. So they are people who are versed in the entire Forrester product portfolio and can help work with our client executives to bring multiple product solutions together to best address a client's needs. So at the highest level, those are the three roles that we have within our premier organization. And then we have a separate new business arm there. The only place where we tend to have hybrids are in smaller geographies for us where we're still growing our presence. So oftentimes we'll have hybrids where we start off with new business reps, but then as they bring clients on board, they start to engage and manage those relationships. But it tends to be where our business is at a slightly smaller scale outside of the U.S. So let's start with the core organization. So there you said you've got the new business folks who hunt, close, and then hand off to the account managers. I know some people have found a solution where they have the account executive who closes the business keep it for, say, a year. Have you not done that? Do they not hold it for a year? So we have experimented with that. And what I would say, this is definitely a sweeping generalization, is I tend to find that people either are more inclined to be folks that engage and grow relationships or people who like the hunt. And we have not found a lot of people who really excel at both. I think you're asking a lot of folks. So what we tended to see in that model was either folks might keep an account, but then not be bringing more logos on in the same pace because they were so focused on expanding an account. Or the more common scenario was that they were so busy off hunting new things that the engagement didn't happen with that um, account that they might have previously sold. And as a result, um, that business maybe didn't renew. So our first year retention rates weren't where we would have liked them to be. And what we really wanted to do is make sure that there was somebody from the onset of a relationship who's responsible for driving value and engagement. And that's where adding the customer success role within the premier organization has really helped us to make sure 
that somebody gets onboarded very quickly, that we understand how they're looking to get value from Forrester, and we can get the engagement going on a much regular cadence. Then if somebody's also trying to balance that with managing pipeline opportunities, trying to bring on new business, et cetera, I just, my personal experience is that one or the other tends to suffer when people are trying to do both. I'm with you that people seem to be more wired to either hunt or farm. It's natural that if they're being successful in one area, then they kind of keep doing that and they do get distracted from, from the other side. I'm with you on that. You mentioned the customer success manager, CSM, in the premier side. Is it that your account managers in the core side are also fulfilling the CSM function as well as the commercial function? Yes, they do. And a lot of that is because a lot of our relationships within the core organization might just be one or two seat holders that our concern was that it might create a clunky client experience if we had both a CSM and an account manager looking to engage, because in a lot of these instances, our buyer and the person receiving the services were one and the same. So in that situation, we do have just one person there. We do have um, a customer success specialist role that does help with coordinating things like increase with our analysts and vendor briefings, just to try to help expedite that process, um, who are a bit more familiar with the overall content and can help facilitate some of those conversations. But by and large, there's one person who's the face to the client because the client footprint tends to be a little bit smaller. And then moving on to Premier, you mentioned the solution partners. First of all, there are people, again, who have a good understanding of the entire breadth of the Forrester and now Serious Decisions product portfolio. Why have a broad line, if you will, solutions partner as opposed to product specialists for individual products? For you guys, why have a broad line solution partner as opposed to more narrowly focused product specialists? That was definitely an area of much discussion when we moved into this model. And and interestingly, it is another area where Sirius does have product-focused specialists um, in their organization. So that's definitely something we'll be taking a look at. When we put the customer engagement model in place two years ago, the reason we went with somebody who would go horizontally across products was one of the things that we were seeing was that depending upon which product org, and we sort of have five different types of products within our portfolio, and depending upon who a sales rep brought an opportunity to first, that product specialist would automatically see it through their lens. So if you went to the analytics team, it became an analytics opportunity. Consulting team, it became a consulting opportunity. And we definitely saw that we were missing the opportunity to connect the dots for our clients and that oftentimes there was a role that multiple products could play in a solution. We also saw that some reps were developing biases in terms of what they were positioning with clients based on perhaps having a positive interaction with a sales overlay with a specific product set, which might not have actually been the best outcome or product to put in front of the client. So given that we're in the age of the customer and that's what Forrester writes about, we went with the decision to put in place a team of overlays that are product agnostic so that they could really try to look at these complex issues through the customer's lens and then work with our ecosystem to figure out what the best solution was going to be. It wasn't without a lot of debate around the depth of the specialization um, versus being able to go broad. But we did ultimately err on the side of doing what we thought would lead to a best outcome for our clients, which was somebody who was product agnostic. And then part of our process as well is once we start to get a thought on how we might want to approach a particular situation, 
we would then leverage folks from within those product organizations as well. So if it's consulting, the consultants are the ones ultimately doing the scoping, um, but putting together a proposal in conjunction with the solutions partner. So as we get deeper into an opportunity, we certainly do pull in folks from those product organizations who can give more detail around how we've helped similar clients tackle the same issue in prior circumstances. Can you talk a little bit about the people who develop new business in the premier or strategic accounts segment? Absolutely. So for our new business team, we do also have a solution partner um, aligned with that team as well, because one of the things that we've definitely seen, especially when you're talking to C-level executives in 1B plus organizations, is that their problems are pretty complex and oftentimes go beyond just the research product, although everything we do is grounded in that research um, seat. So we do leverage in those instances there solution partners for more complex deals. Um, And then we also have a team, we call them sales development specialists who serve to help qualify leads at the front end of the pipeline, you know, following up both on inbound leads coming from marketing as well as proactive prospecting as well. And the sales development specialists um, are in the premier sector and I would presume you also have SDRs or BDRs in core. That is correct. Do you separate the inbound people from the outbound people? We don't do that today, but we have been seeing and reading more about that. So I think, and would love to get your perspective on this, Jeremy, that there's probably a certain size or scale that once you get to, it probably makes sense both from an efficacy perspective as well as career path and development. Um, So it is actually something that we've interestingly enough been talking about as part of this acquisition is you know, is there a critical mass at which it makes sense to structure the teams that way? And if so, what does that look like? And when would a company typically do that? Because we don't do that today, but we do know that there are some best practices out there that would suggest doing that both from a conversion perspective, as well as career pathing and development. So we'd love to get your thoughts on that. Having done it a number of ways and also seen many of our clients do it different ways, What we landed on and what we do at Sales Loft is we're account-based like most organizations either are or moving rapidly towards. So every single account that we have in Salesforce has been mapped to three people. One is the account executive, two is a sales engineer solutions consultant, and three is an SDR. So all those accounts are mapped. So if we get an inbound lead that goes to an account that already exists and has been mapped, then we actually route that lead instantly to the person who is assigned in that case, the SDR. And we use a sales engagement tool to then automatically, instantly and automatically send an email from the SDR to the prospect for them to schedule time to book a demo or have a conversation about the services. So that's our way to ensure that we're following account-based best practices. And then also meet the other thing, which is to get as fast back to the prospect as possible. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Thank you. I'd love to just ask a question about hiring executive sales leaders, right? Because so often people talk about how do you hire salespeople to sell, for example, into the enterprise, but you're in the unique position, right, of leading a large, quite large selling organization. When you look for VPs and SVPs, what have you, what do you look for in those senior executive sales leaders? I would say, I think because of the somewhat niche type company and or space that we're in, we do have an emerging sales manager program here that we use and leverage to try to help build our strength and bench from within the organization. Um, so not always in a position to fill an internal vacancy with internal candidates, but that definitely is our design point is to try to promote folks from 
within. Um, I've been at Forrester for 20 years, so it's a very important thing to me to make sure that we're creating opportunities for the individuals in our sales team. I would say regardless of whether somebody is coming to us and being promoted internally or coming in from the outside, I do think we've moved away from looking at industry experience and more so focused on what are the different traits and drivers that this individual has? And some big ones that I've leveraged are around things like grit and tenacity, as well as this um, concept of extreme ownership, which was actually a book that I stumbled across. I have a long commute, so Audible is my friend and um, had listened to this book late last year. And we sort of used it as a foundation for our sales manager kickoff. And literally the concept is just that if an organization is not meeting with its goals, that falls on the leader. You got to put the mirror up, no one else to blame. Being in a place, especially when you're in a people business where it's always easy to point the finger at somebody else or focus on what other people maybe didn't do and or deliver versus having people with a mindset that A is growth oriented, but B that says, okay, the givens are the givens. How do I make sure that I still get to my goal and not letting themselves or their teams get distracted? So those are some of the traits that we look for. Our management framework has sort of three buckets. We look for people who are good people leaders, good business leaders, and and thought leaders. And one of the things that we benchmark and stack rank our sales managers on is both percentage of reps at plan, as well as their sales rep retention rates, because we feel very strongly that the more successful we're able to make our reps, um, the better they are able to serve, the more engaged they are, the more they're going to engage with our clients and our clients will have a more positive experience. So we focus on the people leadership piece. On the business leadership side, we are really focused on growing our organization and want people with a growth mindset and thinking about ways to expand our footprint within their territory, as opposed to being afraid, well, if I sell this this year, what's that going to do to my quota next year? Um, So we've worked really hard to develop a growth mindset. And then the thought leadership piece is really around trying to understand more deeply What are the issues that our clients are dealing with? Um, What's the feedback that their clients are giving to them? And where can we help? And really pushing ourselves to develop our business acumen as well as the business acumen of the folks that we're serving. So those are sort of a couple of different things that we look for when we look for more senior leaders here. I think I'm going to leave listeners hanging because I have so many other questions on on this. (laughs) What is the best way for people to learn more about you and learn more about Forrester? Sure. Well, if anybody wants to learn more about Forrester, um, obviously going to our website at uh, goforrester.com would be a great place to go. And my email address is khippler at forrester.com. So if anybody has any questions, feedback, thoughts, anything that Forrester might be able to help them with or any questions I can answer, they'd certainly be welcome to reach out by email. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.